Tonight, the Lone Ranger rides again. I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Hello and welcome back to all of our listeners around the world and throughout the United States. We're glad to have you back with us. And if you are listening for the first time, welcome to the show. We hope you enjoy what we have to offer you. We have a very fascinating story today uh, dealing with two men, one of them fictional, (laughs) one of them (laughs) fictional. I'm stumbling over my words. I'm so excited. And the other one, a real person. Uh, The first person we're going to be talking about is the Lone Ranger. And then we are going to be talking about uh, his possible inspiration, Bass Reeves. And uh, his story is one that uh, is not widely known. There are a few books out there. There are a few articles about him. But his story is so incredible, uh, we just had to share it with you today. That's right. And uh, Gary, perhaps what you could do... Uh, better than I can, is uh, tell our listeners a little bit about the fictional Lone Ranger. Well, absolutely. So the fictional Lone Ranger was uh, a character created by Fran Stryker, uh, a a very talented man who started out in radio. Uh, That's where he developed the character of the Lone Ranger and then went on to write several novels with the character and even developed uh, the Green Hornet, uh, which many of you may not know, is related to the Lone Ranger. I I believe it was his nephew, his great nephew. Um, In fact, his first mask was cut from the same vest that the Lone Ranger got his mask from. And that uh, vest came from uh, the Lone Ranger's brother who was gunned down in an ambush. Um, So a very interesting character. Um, And I mean, you know, we could go into the origins of how, you know, he... um, went on a ride with his brother and they were attacked by uh, a rival group uh, of rustlers that uh, weren't interested in being arrested. And uh, Tonto, who had been friends with him for many years, you know, took him in and and nursed him back to health and and all of that. Uh, But uh, why don't we talk a little bit about Franz Stryker, the man who created him, because he's he's kind of at the center of how this story got started and where he may have pulled his inspiration from. Yes, uh, Fran Stryker was a uh, prolific writer. He was born in 1903, Gary, uh, you know, just at the dawn of the 20th century. Uh, And in his late 20s, uh, the roaring 20s, he was uh, writing scripts for radio shows. And as you know, radio was a very popular form of entertainment back then. And we're kind of doing something similar to what they did back then in the old radio days with the podcast. Well, of course. I, I think today uh, podcast is definitely the new radio. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, I was having a conversation with uh, my brother-in-law, uh, and we were talking about how they're, they're doing dramatizations now with podcasts, which is pretty much a radio show. Yes, uh, I, I see very little difference. And uh, so with uh, Fran Stryker, uh, <clears throat> one of his early successes was a Western show, which he called Covered Wagon Days. But in the 1930s, uh, this is the Depression era for the United States, he began reworking those scripts into a show that he called The Lone Ranger. The masked <clears throat> man who rode through the plains mm-hmm. with his two side guns mm-hmm. with silver bullets. 
Now, The Lone Ranger officially premiered on a Detroit radio station, WXYZ, and a radio actor named George Stenius played The Lone Ranger in that uh, premiere uh, series on the WXYZ. George Stenius would eventually leave Detroit and head for Hollywood, Gary, and he changed his name to George Seaton. Does that ring a bell with you? Oh, yes, a very famous director. Uh, one of the most famous pieces that a lot of people would recognize that he did is Miracle on 34th Street. Yes, one of his big movies. And of course, he did the 1962 version of Mutiny on the Bounty. And two of my favorites were The Counterfeit Traitor uh, about World War II. I love that one. Uh, it's it's not one of his big ones, but it's uh, one of my favorites. And then uh, Story of a Patriot, which is the Williamsburg uh, iconic film that all visitors to Williamsburg get to see uh, before they tour around the colonial buildings. So George Seaton uh, was a powerful uh, and very prolific Hollywood director, and he started his performing career on the radio as the Lone Ranger. Now, uh, Fran Stryker was pretty prolific also. You mentioned that uh, he wrote some Lone Ranger novels. There were two movie serials. And yep. he even uh, did a Lone Ranger comic strip. But here's the part that blows my mind. He wrote 156 Lone Ranger radio scripts every year. That's a lot of writing. That's a lot of stories <laughs> to tell, too. You're not kidding. You're not kidding. Uh, it challenges us just to do uh, one podcast a week. He was writing... Uh, 156 Lone Ranger scripts a year. And then uh, when he started the Green Hornet, he was writing those also. And and by the way, the Green Hornet's built around uh, the Lone Ranger's descendant, Britt Reed. That's right. We, and that's why the last names are the same. Um, but it was, it, it's one of those things we could get off on a whole subject on that. But I mean, it, it was a character who uh, was meant to be the next Lone Ranger, but he saw that he needed to, uh, to create a new character, and I believe uh, in his origin, um, he he heard his it was either his father or his uncle or somebody said that uh, when something happened, he got as mad as a hornet, and so he thought he would use that as his his main inspiration for his character. There you go. And uh, but both the Lone Ranger and the Green Hornet were uh, heroes that um, most saw as bad guys, so they could get in close to the true villains, and uh, and disperse their own brand of justice and stay just a little outside of the law. Unfortunately, uh, Fran Stryker um, died in a 1962 car accident. Very tragic because he was moving with his wife and children to a new home at the time, and he was only 59 years old. So we lost this extremely talented man uh, at the age of 59. But in 1981, the Hollywood filmmakers decided to honor him in the legend of the lone ranger and so they created two characters in that movie uh named after fran striker lucas striker and amy striker in the 1981 film the legend of the lone ranger which i liked i, I know it's not a super popular version of the lone ranger but I, I do like it um i think i like it a little bit more than the remake that they did uh, with disney a few years back still a good movie but i don't know i, I felt like it had a little bit more action in it yeah, I uh, I knew one of the fellows who uh, was an extra in that movie, and he rode uh, with the cavalry uh, at the end, you know, uh, yeah. coming in, and they crossed this river. Well, he had an accident, and he fell off his horse in the river. 
Oh, no. And uh, it was kind of a dangerous thing, but uh, the editors loved it so much they kept it in the movie. So if you watch the Legend of the Lone Ranger and you see in the background a cavalryman falling off his horse in the river, you'll know that that was not scripted. That I one. have seen that. I, <laughs> did, I watched it the other day. They have yeah. it on 2B TV. Yeah. So anyways, um, moving along, our question this evening is... Was the Lone Ranger, the fictional Lone Ranger we've been talking about as created by Fran Stryker, was he inspired by a real-life Western hero? Did Fran Stryker know of someone from the Old West who was a real person that he modeled his hero after? Well, I think so. Uh, and I'm not so sure. So let's start off with a maybe and maybe the listeners can have a better idea and form their own conclusion. Yes, we'll leave, we'll leave it up to you to decide what you think. But from what I understand, everything that I've read, uh, Bass Reeves, the person we're going to talk about, uh, was one of the main sources of inspiration. But I think our listeners will understand why once you start telling a little bit about his history. Okay, well, Bass Reeves, uh, we already know his name now. Uh, he was an African-American man who was born in Arkansas as a slave back in the year 1824. Uh, he was owned by a wealthy plantation owner and a politician, uh, Arkansas politician, named William Steele Reeves. So, of course, Bass took his name after his right. owner. <clears throat> I don't know how they uh, came up with his first name. But anyways, uh, after his uh, owner, and then as a teenager in the early 1840s, Bass became a runaway slave. He had had enough of slavery, and so he decided to run away. And he hid out in the Indian Territory, which we now know in the United States as our state of Oklahoma. Okay. Now, Bass Reeves lived among the Indians for 22 years after that, Gary. And during that time, that yeah, that's a chunk that's of a time. a good time, yeah. Yeah. He mastered their languages, more than one. Mm -hmm. He became a crack shot with both the pistol and the rifle, and he became familiar with much of that unsettled Indian territory. He knew the ins and outs, and he knew his way all the way around that unsettled and lawless territory. Oh, wow. Now, in 1863, while he was living there, word reached him somehow that President Abraham Lincoln had set him free. In fact, set all the uh, slaves free with something called the Emancipation Proclamation. Well, when word got back to Bass Reeves about that, he felt it was time to bid goodbye to his adopted Indian family after 22 years, and he moved to uh, Van Buren, Arkansas, a small town, mm. and he started a small farm there. Now, he lived with someone. I don't know as he married her. She may have been a common-law wife. Right. But in any event, they had uh, five boys and five girls. And when she died, he started a second family. Now, in 1875, fast forward, wild and woolly west days. Right. Bass Reeves was 51 years old. Now, by the standards of the day, Gary, he was an old timer. His, oh, life, yeah. his life was over. Do you know what the average age span or lifespan for men back was well i mean it couldn't have been much more than 40 something that's exactly what it was the average lifespan for men was 40 in 1875 oh dear lord i mean that would make me uh a senior citizen right now yeah that would make you close to uh reaching uh, the uh, limit of your lifespan mm -hmm. if you were living in yes. 1875 
And uh, he was 51, so he was 11 years old, old uh, older than that mm-hmm. to begin with. So he had enough children to help him run the farm, which was good. So he could sit back in his rocking chair on the porch. Mm-hmm. Enjoy right? his retirement. Yeah, and Well, enjoy his last couple of years, right? Mm-hmm. Now, had he done so, we never would have heard of him today. And possibly we would not have had a real-life inspiration for the Lone Ranger. So what happened in his life at age 51 that brings us to the question of whether or not he inspired the Lone Ranger? I mean, right now, other than uh, living with uh, the Native Americans and learning their culture... Being a crack shot. Being a crack shot. I mean, the, the farmer thing doesn't really lend itself to being the Lone Ranger. No. No, we have to uh, we have to bring in some uh, lawman type of experience. And so, in 1875, lawlessness by then was totally rampant in the Indian Territory. Right. Everybody who was an outlaw went there because uh, the reach of the U.S. government or state governments uh, just didn't extend that far. So they could live there pretty much in, with impunity. Come on out, mm-hmm. do their crimes, and go back in. So. Finally, the federal government in Washington just got tired of that. They got sick of that nonsense. And so Congress appointed a federal judge for the territory, and his name was Isaac Parker. Now, Isaac Parker became known as the Hanging Judge. Ooh. Mm-hmm. And he set up his court there in Fort Smith, Arkansas, not too far away from Van Buren, where Bass Reeves had his farm. And I'll tell you what, uh, Isaac Parker, I mean, he was a colorful character. We don't have time to go into his uh, persona tonight, but do you, do you know he hanged six men all at once, all at the same time, just in order to save time? That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, their, their life wasn't worth extending five no. or ten extra minutes each. Uh, no, no, let's go ahead and hang them all hang and be done all. with it. That was Isaac Parker. That I don't think you'd be wanting uh, want to get caught doing something wrong in his neck Whoa, of the woods. That's why you know he became known as the hanging judge out there. Nobody wanted to go up against Isaac Parker in his court. So what he did immediately was he hired a United States marshal, and uh, that fellow's name was James Fagan, and then he organ uh, authorized Fagan to hire a whopping two hundred deputy U.S. marshals. That's a lot. That's a lot of marshals, yeah. For, for that time, that's a lot of marshals. Yeah, we're not talking about New York City or Los Angeles. We're talking about Fort Smith, Arkansas? Yeah. Well, it seems like a lot for tiny Fort Smith, but listen to this. Parker's jurisdiction extended over the Indian Territory, and that was fifteen to 20,000 square miles. And there were literally hundreds of thousands of near-perfect hideouts for the outlaws. Now, when you look at it that way, 200 deputy marshals almost sounds like it wouldn't be enough. Yeah, yeah. But now, 20,000 square miles, Gary. Mm-hmm. Wasn't part of the problem, too, that uh, a lot of these outlaws were hiding out in the, uh, the Indian nation and they were dodging because <clears throat> not a lot of people would go through that area? Right. Right. There was no telegraph or, you know, uh, regular mail deliveries or anything. I don't know how in the world he ever found out about the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. But um, anyhow, that uh, that was a lawless and remote territory. And Washington, D.C. decided uh, it's got to be cleaned up. So they 
told Isaac Parker, go out there, clean it up. He hired uh, U.S. Marshal James Fagan, and he started hiring 200 deputy U.S. Marshals. And so when he rode up to the Bass Reeves farmhouse, he was met by a 51-year-old African-American man who stood six foot two inches tall, who weighed 180 pounds, who was a crack shot, who spoke the Indian languages, and who knew his way all around that 20,000 square miles. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, you know, uh, Bass Reeves was such a crack shot that the local folks in Van Buren wouldn't let him uh, sign up for the, the turkey shoot contest because oh. he won them all. Nobody else <laughs> would win. <laughs> oh, yeah, a little hard to have uh, so, anybody else win when you got one person who's an expert yeah, at all of it. Yeah, so they, they finally told him, look, uh, you can't enter the contest. Uh, we got to let other people have a chance at winning. Too darn good. Mm-hmm. So anyways, um, the federal authorities in Fort Smith knew him for other reasons, too, because it turns out he, he was the best tracker they had when they were venturing into Indian territory. And he even spoke Creek among some other Indian languages. And so he had been doing some off and on work for the government as it was as a tracker. Mm. And so <clears throat> they knew he knew his way around in that uh, Indian territory. And uh, Marshall Fagan also knew something else. He knew that the Indians didn't trust or cooperate very much with the white man. Uh-huh. because they had been abused so uh, much by the white man that, you know, they're not going to get along too well with the white man coming into their territory. There. Yeah. So they were, far more, uh, they were far more open to African-Americans mm-hmm. who were sprinkled throughout the Indian territory. So Bass Reeves turned out to be the perfect candidate for one of those 200 deputy marshal's badges. But that's from the federal government's point of view. But what about from Bass Reeves' point of view? He was married. He had eight kids. He was doing well as a small farmer. Why would he want to get involved in uh, something that could get him killed? Yeah, right. And he could still get money from the occasional scouting jobs for the government. Of course. And then the big thing, he was 11 years old, older than the average lifespan for men at the time. Mm-hmm. He was 51 years old. And then here's another big issue that Marshall Fagan had to deal with. Only he, the U.S. Marshal, got a salary. The deputies, they didn't get a salary. All they were guaranteed was 10 cents a mile out and back for a maximum of 30 days per trip. Now, if they came back empty-handed, Gary, they came back pretty broke. A month away from the farm, no income. That's it. Uh, So... What a what a dicey situation mm-hmm. there. You had to go into a deputy marshal's job knowing that you could bring some outlaws back. Yeah. Now, if they did capture a wanted outlaw, the deputies would receive 75 cents a day to feed the prisoner. Mm-hmm. And if you were careful with that, you could make some money off of that. Yeah, 75 cents. <laughs> yeah. Give them uh, diet uh, meals. Yeah, I, we're joking about it, but I mean, back then, that, that would not like a huge amount of money, but it would have been, you know, yeah. decent, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And I know for a fact that uh, bacon and beans and a little sourdough bread formed a lot of those meals. So. Sure, they did. Uh, but here's the big part the deputy could keep all of the reward money. Now, many of those fugitive warrants carried a $500 reward, and some were as high as Mm $1,000. So if you were good at it, a deputy U.S. marshal could make a lot more money manhunting than than in farming. You had to be good at it. Had to be. But you could be, um, you know, you could make some serious money. 
So after some serious overnight thinking, what do you think Bass Reeves decided? Let's do it. Let's do it. He headed into Fort Smith. He accepted the job. He returned home wearing the badge of a deputy United States Marshal. I can imagine his little boys just going crazy over that. He probably oh, yeah. pinned the badge on one of their shirts or something. Oh, I would think so. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. And uh, he also learned that each deputy traveled with a guard, and that was usually a white man, mm-hmm. and a cook, and the cook was usually a black man. Both were salaried, and the guard driving the prisoner wagon, he got $3 a day, and the cook driving the chuck wagon, he got $5 a day. Why do you think the cook got more than the guard? Because he's preparing the food. Yeah, and that food better be... <laughs> it better be good. <laughs> it better be good. <laughs> and uh, so we can only speculate as to... Um, what happened to Bass Reeves on his first day as a U.S. Deputy Marshal because he left no record behind about it. But I'd say he probably packed his fresh white linen shirt, his blue suit, his polished black boots. That was his outfit for being a U.S. Deputy Marshal officially. Looking professional. Yes. Probably started uh, off um, on the hunt, the 30-day hunt, with a great breakfast. It might have consisted of a heaping plate of scrambled eggs, slices of bacon, fresh biscuits, and maybe some chicory-flavored coffee to top it all off. Now, Bass Reeves, he knew a couple things. He knew how to catch, it turns out he knew how to catch outlaws, and he knew how to save money while he was on the road again. Um, they did have word uh, from around the old-timers uh, circles that he saved on his expense money by talking the livery stable owners along the way to letting him and his team sleep in the stall so they wouldn't have to go rent a room at a local boarding house. <laughs> <laughs> and now he spent 30 years as a deputy U.S. Marshal, and listen to this, he captured 3,000 outlaws. 3,000 outlaws. That's a lot of people, even by today's standards. Oh, yeah. I can't think of anybody... Who's caught 3,000 people. Outlaws. And now think of this. He kept all the reward money. And supposing all of the rewards were only $500. If you uh, do some uh, math and multiply 500 by 3,000, Bass Reeves became a very wealthy man. Yeah, he did. But just contemplate this for a moment. We're talking about 3,000 people that he captured. During a time when there was no digital technology... There was no way to, uh, like you said, send telegraphs out, especially to areas where there was no way of communicating, period. This is incredible. That's why this is an incredible story. 3,000 people during the lawless Western days. Yeah. And, and uh, they all, uh, he, he brought them all out of Indian territory. They didn't have any telephones or telegraph or. Right. That's what I'm, I'm saying. We, no technology. There was nothing that would have no, helped, no. really helped to aid them in, in being able yeah. to find. And we're talking about days worth of travel by horse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's pretty, that's pretty incredible. It is. <clears throat> and I don't know how many he would bring in in a year, but the average would be if he did 3000 over 30 years, a hundred a year. Well, that's a pretty good income. Yes, it is for somebody who was in their fifties and was by that standards was an, an elderly man, yep. you know. It sure did put money in the bank f- uh, faster than the farm did, that's for sure. That's for sure. Now, out of all of them that he uh, he went after, uh, there were only 14 he didn't bring back alive to face the hanging judge. Uh, 14 of them decided to shoot it out with him, and um, he shot it out with them, and then he brought them in dead. 
because he was a crack shot. Right. Not just with the pistol, but also with a rifle. Right. So we're talking about somebody who was lethal with his mm-hmm. firearms. Mm-hmm. Now, he had another secret uh, to his success, other than being familiar with the Indian ter- territory, other than his gunslinging skills. Gary, Bass Reeves apparently was a terrific actor. Oh, yes. Oh, he was an actor. On the trail... He took those Marshall's duds, those fancy duds, the blue suit, the yes. black boots and polished black boots and linen shirt, put them in his saddlebags, out of sight, out of mind. And then he dressed up like a down-and-out bum. <laughs> Nobody's going to be suspecting a bum taking no. them home or, or taking them to jail. Sometimes he even used a sense of humor and he decided he'd uh, act like a feeble-minded bum. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he, you know, uh, couldn't uh, reckon the time of day. Mm-hmm. And what his team, the uh, guard with the prisoner wagon and the cook with the chuck wagon, they'd hide a few miles out of town, and he stumbled into town, or the little villages, I couldn't really call them towns, little villages there in Indian Territory. Right. He stum- they had a saloon, and maybe that was about it, you know, in those places. Sure. But he, uh, and maybe a little tiny dry goods store, but that would be about it. And he stumbled in alone, his pistols were hidden under a dirty, raggedy old shirt or coat, and I can guarantee you that no one, no one ever took him for a deputy United States marshal. Mm-hmm. Feeble-minded African-American bum walking into town. Nobody paid attention to him while he was surveilling the, the scene or asking questions. Uh, in fact, when he'd go into the saloons, yeah. The uh, saloon keepers uh, got suspicious and they kept their eye on him, not because they thought he was a lawman, but they thought he was there to catch some free drinks and they wanted him out as soon as possible because they didn't want him, right? you know, getting yeah. char- charity drinks in the saloon. So uh-huh. <laughs> he played the part very well. He knew <clears throat> what he was doing to get what he needed. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there was local gossip among the Fort Smith old timers. We can't say that this actually happened mm-hmm. because on. Fortunately, the Bass Reeves story has very, very, very few documented details. But uh, local old timers uh, back in his contemporary, in the contemporary time of Bass Reeves, said that uh, there was one occasion where he approached the home of a, a wanted man, and the man's mother took pity on him. Such a poor little bum. Yeah. <laughs> and a little bit feeble minded besides. Look at that raggedy shirt and coat. Oh, and he's hungry. So she uh, brought him in, offered him a meal and a place to stay for the night. Well, during the night, her son, the outlaw that he was looking for, finally came home, went to bed. And in the middle of the night, when everyone was, was asleep, Bass quietly got out of bed, handcuffed his man, led him out of the house and down the road to the prisoner wagon, and the man's mother followed behind, yelling and cursing at him the entire time down the road. <laughs> <laughs> I, in some ways, he was almost like a ninja. Yeah. You know, he, he knew how to blend oh, in, oh, what a how, to, how yeah. to get close, and yeah. then execute his goal of what Spring. he was doing. Sprint. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. Now, sadly, later on in his life, his son, Benny, was accused of murdering uh, Bass Reeves' second wife. Oh, my gosh. And Bass was in the position of where he had to track his own son down and, and bring him to justice. Now, 
Initially, Benny was sentenced to life in prison, but uh, this uh, case, I really wish there were more infam- was more information available on it because the circumstance is very, very murky, very, very cloudy, and Benny ended up being pardoned and released. He didn't serve any prison time at all and, and went on to become an upstanding citizen like his father, so uh, we don't know what, what that whole story was about. I'd be curious to learn about that. I, I yeah. couldn't imagine, though, what it would be like for him having tracked down his own son oh, for the murder of his wife. That had to be tough, but... Uh, it had a happy ending. Benny turned out great in the end, and um, turns out he probably wasn't guilty of anything anyways. Mm-hmm. Now, shortly before Bass Reeves died at 81 years old, which is what, 40 years after, 41 years after he was supposed to have died of old age? <laughs> he definitely lived a, a very long life. Mm-hmm. He traded in his deputy U.S. Marshal's badge because, um, you know, uh, Arkansas had, uh, or Oklahoma had become a state. And uh, so they, now they went to municipal lawmen. So he became a town constable in Muskogee, Oklahoma, where they have a bridge named after him today. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Muskogee, Oklahoma. They have a bridge named after him there. And uh, he died in 1910 with his badge and his boots on. I mean, he was a lawman right up to the very end. Now, I have here an interesting obituary that appeared the day after he died. This is the actual obituary? This is the actual obituary. It was printed in the local newspaper, Muskogee newspaper, January 13, 1910. He died on January 12th. And this is about the only recorded, documented information we have about Bass Reeves other than the numbers and names of the people, 3,000 people he brought to Isaac Parker's court. Right. Here's the obituary, Gary. Everybody who came in contact with the deputy in an official capacity had a great deal of respect for him. His belt was shot in two, a button was shot off his coat, his hat brim was shot off, and a bridle ring in his hand was cut by a bullet. During these narrow escapes, he killed 14 men. He was never wounded. And he never fired a shot until the desperado he was trying to arrest had started shooting first. So the question tonight, did Bass Reeves somehow come to the attention of Fran Stryker and become the inspiration for the Lone Ranger? Now, I'm going to say I believe yes. And here's the reason why. We're talking about somebody who was a crack shot with pistols and rifles, a master of disguise, always got his man, and uh, was an honest person. He wasn't out to just kill. He didn't pull his gun until he was fired on. So he was an honest man. Um, I believe those are qualities that could have definitely lent themselves to the story. Now, that being said, I know one of the things that you were probably going to talk about is the fact that there's not a lot about uh, Bass Reeves out there right now in the 21st century. But to that, I'd say that goes for uh, a lot of the other ones too. Pat Garrett, um, who else? Um, OK Corral. Um, Wyatt Earp. Wyatt Earp um, and all of those guys. Um, not a lot of them were known through the through the whole U.S. until much later on mm-hmm. when their legends started coming out. And, and when we talk about uh, legends or tall tales about people, some of them are true. Uh, I'm not true, but they're 
the people were real. You know, Annie Oakley was a real person. Mm -hmm. Calamity Jane was a real person. You know, but the the stories about them are, you know, just fictionalized. Fictionalized. They're they're built up, I, and it's the the thing with stories is that the more people tell them, the more details people add to them. They embellish them a little bit to make them even more exciting than they really are. So I have a feeling that his story spread and there were probably even more embellishments put on there that he was an unstoppable force, which, I mean, according to actual records that we have about him, it sounds like he pretty much was an unstoppable force. But I could see how maybe the, the story of this lawman, even if they didn't know his name was Bass Reeves, probably made its rounds. And uh, I, we don't. Do we know where Fran Stryker grew up? Oh, I can't recall offhand. But it's possible that he may have heard or he may have read uh, something about a lawman uh, who had accomplished incredible feats. Uh, I don't think that's impossible at all. And yeah. he could have come in contact with an old timer. Um, when he started uh, doing the uh, Lone Ranger scripts in the 30s, uh, Bass Reeves had been dead only about 20 years or so, so maybe he could have come across one of uh, Bass Reeves' contemporaries and gotten onto him that way. But uh, whether or not uh, Fran Stryker knew about Bass Reeves, I, I accept your rationale that Bass Reeves was the perfect model for the Lone Ranger. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to throw this out there uh, before we wrap up this episode. Um, I would love to see this as a movie. I think he is so incredible, and his story is just so fascinating. This could be a film. You know, Anybody who's out there listening uh, who, who yes, might be interested in, in writing a script about something or is looking for the next big movie idea, I mean, the story of Bass Reeves is just absolutely fascinating. I mean, we've only touched a little bit on the surface of, of who he was and, and what he did. But I'm telling you right now, I mean, uh, we've been hurting for a while for a, another really good uh, Western film. And I honestly think that this story right here lends itself to being a phenomenal, epic Western tale that, I mean, it just couldn't beat. I, and I think... Uh, Tarantino kind of touched a little bit on something like this when he did uh, Django, uh, but that was a little bit more controversial for uh, a lot of people. Um, exciting movie, but I think with this, this is nonfiction. This is reality. I think you could take this story and just do something completely mind-blowing. So, Quentin Tarantino, if you're listening to this podcast, we've just given you your next project <laughs> if you're still into doing uh westerns um this would be an exciting one but uh but to anybody who's out there writing i'm just saying i i think this could definitely be the next big western all right well that's all the time we have and i hear that music whoop there it is so uh i'm richard and i'm gary and this truly was an incredible story. Hiyo Silver! Away! <laughs> there you go. He's, he's riding off in the sunset. If you like what you heard, remember, like and subscribe to our show and tune in every Friday for the next big episode.